I well remember the first time someone told me that a caterpillar would one day turn into a butterfly. I was probably five at the time, and it was my grandfather who told me. We were together in his driveway, and I just asked him about this black and yellow creature that was inching its way forward in front of us. Now, I, of course, already knew what a butterfly was, so I was stunned by what my grandfather was telling me. This thing? This ugly, tiny, slug-like, earth-bound thing? Would somehow one day become a butterfly? It amazed me then just as it continues to amaze me today. You know, as adults, I think we sometimes forget how remarkable certain aspects of creation really are. You know, things like, say, the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly. It's amazing. We learn about it as children. We see it enough times. And we eventually become immune to its wonder. Forgetting all about how mysterious and amazing and inexplicable it all really is. Am I right? Okay, so one more word on butterflies and then we'll move on. I'd later come to find out that the process by which a caterpillar becomes a butterfly... In other words, that the actual mechanisms that enable this remarkable thing to happen, that it all has something to do with the composition of the caterpillar itself. Now, I don't want to get down into the scientific weeds with this this morning, if for no other reason than that I admittedly understand very little of it. But somehow, scientifically speaking, the original composition of the caterpillar, that is to say, some of the original caterpillar's own raw material, serves as the womb out of which that glorious butterfly is born. The point of my mentioning that being this. That glorious butterfly that we ultimately see does not emerge independent of nor discontinuous with the caterpillar that it was before. Instead, the butterfly absorbs and then somehow transforms aspects of the caterpillar itself. And so what that then means is that the glorious butterfly we ultimately see still retains in ways unobservable to the naked eye certain properties, certain aspects of the caterpillar that it was before. Do you get all that? Okay, good. Then hold that for a moment because now I want to provide us with another image. Now I want us to shift gears and consider the image of seeds. And I want us to consider the way that seeds over time 
through a combination of soil and sun and water, and through a remarkable process called photosynthesis, I want us to consider how a seed turns into, say, a flower. Now this, of course, is a process slightly more familiar to us than the process behind a caterpillar's transformation into a butterfly. But nonetheless, here again, just like with the butterfly, we as adults have a way of forgetting just how remarkable this really is. I mean, think about it. We take this tiny little seed, this little thing that's but a fraction of our fingernail in size, this little thing that's smooth to the touch and fairly solid in its composition, and then we put it into the ground, and then it comes back up as something else entirely. We forget how incredible this really is. The seed goes down into the earth as one thing, and it emerges from the earth as something else entirely. Only, and here's the point, only, it's not something else entirely. Instead, it is a transformed version of the original thing. Because in the same way that the butterfly emerged as a butterfly, by absorbing and transforming elements of its original caterpillar condition, so too does the flower that springs forth from the ground emerge out of the seed's original properties. That is, out of the actual composition of the seed that went into the ground. So just like with the butterfly, the flower we see emerge is not independent of nor discontinuous with the seed out of which it originated. Do you follow? Okay, one more image and then I promise we'll finally get to our scriptures. In the Gospels, in the accounts of the risen Jesus, the glorified Jesus who over the course of 40 days visited the disciples in various places at various times, in these accounts, we see a Jesus who, while yes, is certainly more than human, is meanwhile not less than human either. Now let me explain what I mean by that. In the resurrection accounts that we are given, the Jesus we see, glorified in his humanity though he is, is nonetheless still very much Human. The writers go to lengths to impress this upon us. He has a body. He eats food. He walks around, etc., etc., etc. Meaning that the glorified Jesus that we see is in significant ways continuous with the human Jesus he was before crucifixion. And that, by the way, is the central point of the empty tomb. If Jesus had just become a disembodied spirit, his corpse would have still been there. 
The point of the missing body is that God used the raw material of the earthly body in the transformation of and to his glorified body. You follow that? So in other words, the pictures were given in the Gospels of the resurrected Jesus reveal to us a Jesus who, like the caterpillar and like the seed, somehow emerged into his new glorified form, follow me here, out of the raw material from which he came. Do you follow that? Somehow, through some unfathomable mystery, the glorified Jesus grew out of and was continuous with who and what and how he was on earth. Okay. A thousand words into this sermon, I'm finally ready to talk about our scriptures for today. Let's first talk about Paul's words to the church in Corinth. Here in chapter 3 of this letter... Paul talks to the Corinthians about the importance of building upon the work of those disciples who've gone before them. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and I quote, Now no one can lay a foundation other than that which has already been laid, that foundation being Jesus, meaning the glorified, resurrected Jesus. And what Paul means by this is essentially Jesus, through his resurrection, has already arrived in the future promised for redeemed humanity, thereby demonstrating that the longed-for restoration of all things is not only possible, but is now inevitable. Paul is saying, because his resurrection happened, we know that these kingdom hopes of ours are not idle speculations or vain hopes, for he is our first fruits in the harvest, Paul later writes. For he is our flower in the garden, so to speak. For he is our first butterfly in the air. In other words, Paul is simply saying, remember that the new reality, the new creation that we are longing for, Remember that it already exists, but lest we ever forget it, remember too that it exists only because of Christ. Remember, Paul is saying, He is the foundation of all of that. Or as he puts it in his letter to the Ephesians, He is the cornerstone of the whole thing. Okay, I'm belaboring the point. No other foundation can be laid, Paul is saying. No other cornerstone can be set. Jesus makes it possible. That's his point. But, Paul then goes on, but we can, in fact, we must build atop that foundation. Must add on to and around that cornerstone. And as we do, Paul writes, if anyone builds with gold, silver, or precious stones and listen very carefully, that work will survive. 
That is, that work will be drawn up in and become part of the kingdom. But if anyone builds on it with wood, hay, or straw, Paul writes, well, that work will be destroyed when the kingdom comes in its fullness. So all of that to say, Paul's building metaphor is trying to say this, that the kingdom of God has already been opened up, is already at hand, has already begun and been made possible by Jesus and his resurrection. And now in this interim period, in this period between its inauguration and its consummation, now in this period, what we do with our lives as disciples, if it be in accordance with the kingdom, it will be drawn up somehow in and somehow become part of the coming kingdom. Are y'all following that? Because I can't possibly overemphasize its importance. For the entire metaphor is trying to impress upon us this central point. That what we do on earth with our lives matters. That what we do as disciples matters. For, and follow me here, if the actions of our lives are righteous and just, if they are, in the language of Paul's metaphor, made of gold or silver or precious stones, then they will, in some mysterious way, become part of the architecture of the coming kingdom of God. Amazing. But if, however, our actions are vain and self-serving and unjust and inconsiderate, then no matter how successful or productive or creative or noteworthy they may have proven to be in this life, they will be as waste and dross in the coming kingdom. For the day, Paul writes... And by the day, he means the coming restoration of all things. For the day, Paul writes, will disclose it. Listen carefully. And on that day, on that day, the work of each builder will become visible. The work will become visible. Okay, let me shift gears for just a moment. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians 3 in a minute. For now, let's go to Matthew's Gospel. Let's go to the 25th chapter, to Jesus' parable of the king and the nations. To Jesus' parable of what beholding the coming kingdom of God will be like. To Jesus' parable about what being resurrected to life upon the new creation will be like. In this parable, Jesus says that he, the rightful Lord and King, will say to one group, those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my Father, inherit 
this kingdom, and might I add here for clarity's sake, inherit this kingdom whose foundation was first laid by me in my resurrection. Come, Jesus says to those at his right hand in this parable, come, inherit this kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And therefore, because you did that, come inhabit this glorious kingdom. And according to the parable, the righteous will then answer him, Lord, when did we do those things? In other words, yeah, pretty sure we would have remembered that. Like, that would have been a pretty hard thing to remember. To which God has said to respond, No, for truly I tell you, Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my children, you did it unto me. In other words, it might have seemed small to you and insubstantial and insignificant to you. In fact, you may have even forgotten you did it. But it was of enormous importance to me and to the kingdom I've been building. So that's Matthew chapter 25. And there's so much that we could unpack and consider from this passage. But for our purposes today, I want us to focus in on the work that those deemed righteous are said to have performed. And more importantly, I want us to focus in on how the work the righteous performed in their lives didn't get them into the kingdom. That was Christ's doing. But how the work they did was nonetheless drawn into and then transformed, becoming part of the kingdom. Which is to say, I want us to focus on how that work was in some mysterious way connected to the kingdom. I want us to focus on how that work was in some mysterious way not independent of or discontinuous with the kingdom. I want us to focus on how in some mysterious way the kingdom is said to have absorbed aspects of their earthly lives only to transform and glorify these things. Do you see the point I'm making? Paul tells the Corinthians The work you do, if it be solid, if it be the work of true discipleship, that work, he tells the Corinthians, will survive. Tried by the trial of time. Forged through the fire of judgment. Made manifest through the mystery of God's mercy. Somehow, Paul writes, what you build... What you do, how you live, somehow it will remain in the coming kingdom. 
Somehow, what you do, your small, everyday acts of discipleship, your small, everyday acts of service and selflessness that no one else even notices and that you likely won't even remember, somehow, Paul is saying, all of that will, through a mysterious photosynthesis-like process, emerging out of the temporal into eternity like a butterfly from a cocoon, somehow, Paul is saying, that work will one day in the coming kingdom be made visible. That time you sat with the widow who was lonely and lost. That time you went and served soup to those homeless folks downtown. That time you saw a chance to take advantage of that person, but you chose not to do it. That time someone took advantage of you, but you chose to forgive them rather than begrudge it. That time you gave up your Saturday to go teach that child how to read. That time you said, I love you to your own child who unbeknownst to you desperately needed to hear those words in that exact moment. That time. And the sum total of all of those that times, each one of them taken alone being so small, so seemingly insignificant, so worthy of our asking when we emerge from this life into the next and when we stand before the judgment seat of God, so worthy of our asking, how, O oh God, did we contribute to this glorious kingdom? What did we possibly ever do, O oh God, that somehow played a part in the creation of this? To which, according to the scriptures, God will in essence say, in the same way that that beautiful butterfly existed within the caterpillar, and in the same way that that beautiful flower existed within the seed, and in the same way that the glorified Jesus existed within the earthly, in that same way, so the scriptures tell us, God will say, when you sat with that widow, and when you served that bowl of soup, and when you forgave that person, and when you taught that child, when you did all of this, the scriptures tell us, God will say, when you did that, without even knowing it, you were helping to build this. You didn't see it then. God will, in essence, say. You couldn't see it then, God will, in essence, say. But all the while, when you were doing the slow, steady work of discipleship, without being able to see it, without even knowing it, you were all the while building atop the foundation of this kingdom. Well, you see, none of that has been burned up. None of that was in vain. That was not work I asked you to do just for the sake of it. That was not work I asked you to do as some preliminary to this. 
That was certainly not work I asked you to do just to see if you'd do it. No, all of that had a point. All of that had a purpose. All of that work was being done for this, God will say. For your work and his work and her work and their work, all of your work done in my son's name, all of the slow, steady work of discipleship with its slow, steady accretion across all these untold years, all of this work, was part of the raw material, God will say, out of which this glorious kingdom you now see was being built. See, look, God is in essence saying. The very substance of your lives, what you did with it and the body you did it in, all of it has been tried by fire. And look, God is saying, See, all of those tiny, unglamorous, uncelebrated, seemingly insignificant works of goodness have proven to be solid. They were gold, silver, precious stones. See, look, God is saying, the importance of your discipleship, what you couldn't see then. It has now all been disclosed. See, look, the work has become visible. And so see, all of it, everything you did in your life mattered. I close by saying this. The wonder we feel when we consider a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And the wonder we feel when we consider a seed becoming a flower. And the wonder we feel when we consider that human carpenter from Nazareth becoming the glorified Jesus of the resurrection. Such is the wonder we will feel come the promised restoration of all things, when we suddenly behold how the tiny acts of service and discipleship that we've performed in our earthly lives have somehow mysteriously become precious material in the architecture of the kingdom of God. And so then the point and why this is also vitally important in this season of Advent Dear family, what we do here and now in this life is not discontinuous with the coming kingdom for which we wait. For the discipleship we perform here on earth does not get discarded when we pass away. Just as the substance of our lives now does not get severed from us when we enter into the life that is to come. Instead, the kingdom that awaits, the eternal future that lies before us, the life that is to come, all of that will be made possible in some mysterious way 
out of that which currently is. In other words, it matters. All of it matters. What we do now matters. For the day will disclose it. For the fire will reveal it. For the kingdom will unveil it. And there the work, as Paul says, will become visible. And so we in wondrous anticipation say, come Lord Jesus. And then while we wait, we continue to build atop the foundation. Amen.